Shalom and welcome to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. The verses that we're going to look at today are right at the beginning of the Parsha. So there's not really much to, to go through before we get to our verses because they're the first few verses. So I'll just tell you a little bit about the Parsha and then we'll kind of jump right into the verses. Uh, and if we don't go the entire hour because this part will be shorter, I'm, I'm sure everyone can find other things to do with your time. Um, but uh, so this is a par- this is a double Parsha, which takes us to the end of the book, actually. So Rabbi Shapiro and I were talking about how amazing it is that we've been doing this now for four books of the Torah. Um, I think I thought that we would get all the way through the Torah. I'm not sure that Rabbi Shapiro thought that he was going to get all the way through the Torah. Um, just in terms of how long he was going to be able to be excited about the class. So I'm glad that we've made it this far. And um, this Parsha has a few elements in it that you might be familiar with. Um, And if you're going to be with us at all over Shabbat, you will hear me speak on a few of these different elements uh, as well. So there's the cities of refuge. That's one element that comes up in um, in this week's parsha. I don't think I've said the name. It's parshat matot masay. Um, so we read those two those two parshiot together. So the idea of the cities of refuge, which I actually taught on last um, last Shabbat for Shabbos Mincha, is just this idea that there would be these six cities that would be set apart so that if someone inadvertently kills someone else, they have a place to go so that they don't have to be in fear of people coming to try and find them. Or what I taught on um, last Shabbos was the fact that there's also this fear of family members of the person of the victim wanting to kill the person who did the killing, um, which makes all kinds of sense in terms of guilt and in terms of anger and all those things. And so these cities of refuge were to allow the people who had done the killing to be separated and safe so that they were not um, sought after. Now, there's a lot of questions around that of, you know, who is it for and how does it work? And what if you kill someone on purpose? If you kill someone completely knowingly, then you don't get to go into the cities of refuge. But it's just if you, God forbid, by accident, you know, get into a car accident and the car accident was your fault and the person in the other car dies, you did not mean to kill that person. So you would be a person who then could go into the city of refuge. Just an example. They don't talk about cars in the Parsha, but that's just an example in modern day. Um, another part of the Parsha that I will be drashing on tomorrow morning is the different places that they stop along the way. That's in Parshat Masse. Um, that Moshe writes down all the different places. So it says, and they journeyed to blah, 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 and they encamped in blah, blah, blah. And then they journeyed blah, 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 and they encamped blah, blah, blah. And it's a very long aliyah of Torah, but it's actually not so many words because it's all it's telling you is you're going to journey from this place and you're going to land in this place and journey from this place and land in this place. Um, and the drash that I'm giving is is on why is that and how does it relate to, to us in today's uh, society. What we are going to talk about is the other piece of, um, of, well, there's one other piece, I guess, that's not, it's not as explicit as I'm going to make it sound, but at the end of Masse, at the end of the book in completion, um, 
there is the talk of intermarriage um, and how you should not marry from without from outside your clan. So we they use the daughters of Slovkod actually as the example that they married their cousins to stay within the clan. Um, so they were not marrying outside of their family, which obviously marrying cousins back then was very different than marrying cousins in today's uh, in today's world. So the part that we're going to talk about, and I'll share my screen so you can see the verses, is actually, I think, the second verse of Parshat Matot. Um, and this is about the idea of a neder. And now those of you who take this through game class with me, you heard us talk about neder or vows a few weeks ago. So it's interesting that it's coming up again this week um, in the actual Parsha. But the way that, that we talk about vows here is based on how a person takes them on, but also what happens to you if you don't follow through with them. So this is the verse we're going to look at. I'm, I gave us a few other verses just to see, though I didn't, I didn't take commentaries from these other verses. Um, so this is the main verse that we're going to look at, and then I'll, I'll share with you the other two as well. So this is Numbers Chapter 30, verse 3. I believe that Matot starts Numbers chapter 30, verse 2. Let me see here. Um, yeah, so this is the second verse of the Parsha, the third verse of the chapter. And it says, Ish ki yidor neder. So a man, ki in this, in this sense means when or because, as opposed to, um, well, anyway. Here it probably means when. It's more like um, time sensitive as opposed to uh, you would say key blah, 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 because something were to then happen. So it's it's less of that use of the word here. Ish ki dornetter. So when a man makes a vow, ladonai, to God, oh, he shavash vu'ah, um, or he vows to make a vow, right? So it's using, here in the English, you have the words vow and oath, but really they both mean vow and vow. So uh, some, a, uh, a shava in this case, or shavua is a vow that you've vowed. (laughs) And a yidor is a vow that you've vowed. So just two different ways of using the same word. Le'esor isar al nafsho. Um, he should let means to to uh, to like prohibit, but here it's saying he shall not break it, right? He should not break it on his heart. He should keep that obligation on himself. Lo yachel devaro. That's the shall not break his pledge piece. Kechol because everything that came out of his mouth he should do. So now let me just say that one more time clearly, so that you can get it all in one chunk as opposed to separated the way that I said it. So if a person makes a vow to the to God or takes an oath, a vow, imposing an obligation on themselves, they should not break this pledge and they must carry it out. They must carry out all that has crossed their lips, all that has come out of their mouth. They now must carry that out. So if you say, I'm not going to, I'm not going to smoke cigarettes, right? That's a vow you've taken. If you've taken that vow in accordance to God, if you've said, God, I will never smoke a cigarette ever again, you now must, according to the Torah, obligate yourself to that practice and not do anything that will that will dissuade you from, the, from that particular vow. You have to carry out 
that which you've said, because you've said it to God and it's come out of your mouth. The other two verses, which we're not going to ask Kushiot on, so I'm just going to show them to you briefly, are just, the reason that I didn't say he in the first line, even though that's how it's translated, is that it's, it also goes for a woman. So this is not just something that men need to, um, that men need to follow, but this is also a female's obligation. Um, now, for a female, it has to do with whether or not she's living in her family's house or not. But just so that you can see, this is, this is an obligation that both men and women take on. Uh, if they say something, they have to keep it. Okay, let me make this a little bit bigger because I know that people often ask for that. And um, Kushio, let's hear some Kushio on this line. Karen. Oh, uh, what happens if it's an, a vow not to the Lord? Great. Great question. I'm, I think we're going to get to that. It definitely came up in the commentary. So even if we don't get to a commentary on it, I can speak to that. But great. What if it's just a vow that you've made, whether it's to another person or just kind of inside yourself? Like, I'm not going to eat, I don't know, Whatever. potato chips on Thursdays, yes, right? Like, if that's something that you've taken on, is that the same kind of obligation? Great. Oh, wow. Lots of questions. Okay. Elon, just going to go across my screen. <laughs> So two questions. What happens if it's a vow that you would like to retract? For example, I swear to God, I'm going to kill Joe, right? Yeah. Are you obliged to, because you said that, are you obliged to, in fact, uh, go ahead and do that? And and the other question is, what is the penalty for not keeping uh, the vow to the Lord? Great. Great. So that we can look actually the the penalty is written out later on in these verses. So we can actually look in the Parsha and we, I can show that to you. Um, and we'll get to the other piece, the other piece later, but great question. Uh, Joanna. Um, I know you said that Yidor and, or, or Nedar and Shua mean the same thing, but then it begs the question, A, why do we need them both? Right. right? Why is it one sufficient? And not only that, but like, the jumbling of Yidor Neder, Hishavashvu'a. Like, do you really need the noun to follow? Because what else could you vow? Like, Ishki Yidor, oh, Hishava, isn't, isn't that enough? A person who, who vows or, you know, there's so much doubling going on here that it makes me think that there is something, there's some nuance that is there that I'm not seeing. Right. Um, and and it continues, right? Like Asor Isar, so much doubling, so much repetition in the verse. Why all that extra emphasis and what's going on with that? Great. I don't know that I that I brought the source that talks about the doubling because it wasn't really where my mind was at, though there was a commentary on it. So if I can find it, I'll I'll send it to you. But I think that the that even though we have the same English word for it, I think going back to really all the questions that have now been asked is that yid, that a neder is clearly something connected to God, whereas a shvuah is just a regular vow. It seems um, in this particular verse, it's unclear because the word Adonai comes in between the use of both of those words. However, it seems to be that Yidor Neder Ladonai or Hishavashvu'ah, right, seems to be that the Neder is in accordance to that which you would say to God and that the, that the vow itself um, that, that follows doesn't have to necessarily be towards God. But we'll, we'll talk a little bit about that later as well. Marlies. So um, 
I was wondering what the relationship is to the Kol Nidre prayer. And, mm-hmm. um, yeah. I mean, I, I assume the timing <laughs> Kol Nidre came later, but um, just wondered, you know, how, how that relates. And Great. So Kol Nidre um, literally means all of the vows, all of the neders. <laughs> um, so some people would say, that kol nidre is to get rid of any vows that you might say in the coming year. Others would say that it's to absolve you of all of the vows that you that you made up until that year. So it 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 can go both ways. Some people say that it's the following year because of the tense that um that that it's said in when we say it on Yom Kippur. Others say, how can I know any of the vows? Which is the point that I'm going to say in the coming year. So can't this be the moment for me to absolve my sins or not my sins, sorry. My, that was very Christian moment for me. My, um, my vows that from the, from the, uh, from the previous is the word I was looking for previous year. Now it's kind of six of one, half a dozen of the other, because when you think about Yom Kippur, you are trying to start fresh for the next year, but in order to start fresh, you have to think back to the things that you did. So it's it, it's kind of like chicken or the egg in terms of what which nedarim which vows we're talking about here, but that's what it's saying. It's trying to start up Yom Kippur with a clean slate, and for you to know that all of those vows are no longer in play. So to go to Elon's point of, you know, what happens if I said that I was going to do this and now I don't want to do it? Kol Nidre would be one of those moments that absolves you of that vow that you've made. So this, it would be kind of like an annual cycle, basically, is what, and yes, it did come much later. So when the Torah was written, there wasn't such a thing as Kol Nidre, it came much, much, much later. So the cycle wouldn't have been as known um, and definitely not followed in the Torah time. Great Mm -hmm. question. Uh, Tybal and then Denise. Um, mine is like a subset of what other people said, but in a way, but I want to bring it up anyway, assuming that's okay, which is it's not what if the person who made it didn't either know something, for example, well, I'll do that in a second. And this is in conflict with what I'm going to call for this, the big three, either uh, nefesh saving a life that somehow the vow would put someone else's life at risk and they didn't know. Or um, that somehow, let's say the person said they're going to do this with the land, but the parents don't want them to, but they didn't know, but they still want to do it. But the higher value is respecting parents or what's the other one? Shalom bias. And I'm not going to make it the woman because the husband can override. But let's say the husband takes some kind of vow that he didn't realize would be so offensive to his wife and he still wants it. But but is there some procedure for weighing the priorities in the hierarchy? Or, and maybe we know, come to think of there isn't, because if there was, somebody would have gone to Yefta and said, you idiot, <laughs> this is what you do so you don't have to sacrifice your daughter. So great. So you said a lot of things. Um, so the, the, the way in which we would think about this in terms of, the big three that you called them, um, would be that if you took on a vow, but you're trying to save someone's life, then the vow kind of goes out the window. Um, If you took on a vow to do something that would go against honoring your parents, 
well, then you have to consider why you took on that vow in the first place. And probably according to, I think it was Elon's question before, you know, how do you get out of a vow? Um, so you would try to get out of that is my guess. You know, when, when we talk about Nadarim, one of the things that's most uh, interesting, I guess I'll use that word, is that it's really based on what you say. So, right, as it says here, anything that comes out of your mouth, you will say. So if you haven't said it aloud, but you've just thought it, then it seems to be a different category than if you've actually said aloud, this is something I'm taking on for myself. You know, when people, when people diet, right, when they say, like, if other people know that I'm dieting, I do a better job dieting because I'm kept, kept aware um, that other people know what I might be eating or doing or how I might be exercising or whatever. I think it's the same kind of thing. If you know that others have heard what you vowed to do, there's a better chance that you're going to keep that vow because other people now know about it. But, but I think that the, um, the, in, the intention around that which is said aloud is very important to this whole scenario here. Um, and therefore would be different, I think, in those situations that you brought up. Um, definitely always save a life. The parents one, I, I, I'm not really sure. I can't, I just can't think of an example of how it would override it. But um, yeah, Denise. So I'm just, I noticed that if you change the dots on Shavua, it's like Shavua. And then I wondered if there's some kind of connection to Shavua and because... <laughs> We got the Torah, but it's also like kind of taking on a commitment of some sort of almost an oath, I think, of saying, you know, yeah, we're going to hold by these things and we're on board and stuff like that. That's a beautiful drash. I don't know, um, but it's a that's a beautiful way of connecting those things. Um, yeah, I don't know. That's a great, a great drash. That I'm sure you can write one day. Um Okay, so before, I'm just going to stop sharing my screen so I can show, because um, Elon asked a question that I said I would show inside the Parsha. So this, I just I just brought one of the verses um, here. Let me see. Okay, so it just goes case by case as opposed to um, like one big uh, punishment. So, okay, so I'll, I'll tell you the punishment, for example, um, if a woman does something and here, I'll show it to you. If a woman does something and then it goes against her, her husband here. So um, I can make you all smaller so I can see this. So sorry about that. Um, if her husband restrains her, not literally restrains her, but keeps her on the day that he learns of this vow, he thereby annuls her vow which was in force or the commitment to which she bound herself and the Lord will forgive her. So this is a case in which I know we're kind of just jumping in in the middle. Sorry, I'm not giving you context. This is a case in which because she's living in a man's home, he's able to annul her vow for her. That's not how vows are annulled in general. And I'll, I'll answer that question also in a moment. Um, but then it says, so too, if while in her husband's household, she makes a vow or imposes an obligation on herself by oath and her husband learns of it, yet offers no objection, thus failing to restrain her, all of her vows shall stand and her self-imposed obligations shall stand. So she needs to uphold those. But if her husband does annul them on the day he finds out, then nothing that has crossed her lips shall stand. So anything that she said as a vow now no longer is 
is a vow, whether vows or self-imposed obligations. Um, that's what they're calling these isar nafsha, right? Something that you've that you've created for yourself as an obligation. Her husband has annulled them, and the Lord will forgive her. Um, uh, right. So if he annuls them and he finds out, he shall bear her guilt. Now, what 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 does guilt mean? It, guilt actually here in this case, like this Hebrew word, actually means punishment. So what does it mean that she should be punished? Who knows? I mean, later on in Nadarim, when we look in the Talmud, it means that she can be, he can divorce her. Um, what it means for just a person who doesn't do, doesn't do the thing that he's supposed to do. It seems that the punishment is just that God will not, will not see you as a connected entity to God any longer, right? That, that God will kind of, no pun intended, swear you off. Right. And not not be as connected to you because you chose not to do that vow. It doesn't seem like there's any specific um, physical punishment, though. Again, in the Gemara, when we get into more complicated nadarim and vows, you do see where there are where there are physical, not physical, like harming to a body. But you know what I mean? Uh, physical on earthly um, punishments to happen to people. To go back to Elon's question in terms of how do you get out of a vow? Abate Dean. Um, so just like you are converted and just like you are married, even though it's not called a bait dean, you need witnesses, um, you go before a bait dean, uh, similar to Uncle Nidre, where we have three Torahs, just to keep that, that metaphor going. Um, you go before three, in that time, rabbis, wise people, and you say to them, there's a formula, you say to them, this is a vow that I took on, I want to, you know, get out of this vow that I said, and the bait dean then annuls that vow and says you're now out of it. This is why sometimes in modern day, you'll hear people say, Bli neder, I will be at services tomorrow morning, or Bli neder, I will come to your house for Shabbos dinner. So Bli neder means without a vow. So if you're not taking a vow, but saying something that you're promising, then there's no way in which you are making this Torah uh, 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 Torah. Okay, um, this this Torah edict, you know, d- creation, and saying I'm going to now give myself a neder, give myself a vow, Elon. Yeah, this goes back to the verses that you just read. So it it basically makes it impossible to do commerce with a woman because any deal that she cuts can be annulled by her husband. So it it seems highly inefficient. So does that rule still hold for observant Jews today? Obviously, for us, it doesn't. But I would I would have to look into it. I know. I know that there are many cases in which a husband can override his wife in in much more orthodox Judaism, but I don't know if that goes as far as for a neder. Um, so in terms of business law, trying to think if I can, I can, I would have to look into it. I mean, my guess, yes, <laughs> um, but but I don't know because when when living in that kind of society, it would actually almost be assumed that a woman wouldn't necessarily know enough to be able to make that 
that claim or that business deal. And so therefore the man has to oversee it. Um, but I don't know if that's how it works with Nadarim any longer. So I can look, I can look for you and, and find out. I, I'm not sure. I didn't go down a rabbit hole of modern day Nadarim. <laughs> um, any other questions before we go to some commentaries? Okay. Yeah. Type them. Um, it's not a question. It's just a comment that in all those years in Eastern European shtetls, many times the women were the traders, the women were whatever. So there had to be a way to make it work where maybe that, that things that were done in trade weren't considered vows. Do you remember in the in a structure where sometimes the men learned and the women did the trade? Yeah. So. Yeah, but but again, it, what I think what Elon is is mentioning is that even if they were the ones kind of at the front of the store, so to speak, that there was always a man behind any deal that was being made. So, which I mean, when you go into Mayasharim right now, right, the men are not the ones who are working; they're going to, you know, yeshiva every day, and the women are teachers or business women or whatever. They're working. So I, what I just don't know in terms of his question is whether or not the men still have that authority or if it's become because the women now have the knowledge and have that skill, the men have kind of backed off, so to speak, in terms of um, needing to have that hand in things. Denise. From what I know, um, there's sort of a consensus, not everyone signs on to it, but um, there's an idea that when it comes to show and buy it, the wife always has the last say. Yeah, but yeah. but and how then, about um, in business? If so, then again, I'm not like totally yeah plugged in. But my understanding is, if it's a business issue that's going to result in a show and bias issue, then the wife has the last say. Interesting. I would love for that to be true. That'd be great. I do it too. <laughs> Yeah, that'd be wonderful. Um, okay, so let's look at some of these commentaries. Let me just get back to the source sheet very quickly. Um, so one of the things that was most interesting to me was this idea of it coming out of a person's mouth, right? What does that mean? What is a vow? Um, and why is it so clearly connected to words that are said? Um, so this first commentary is more just description of what a vow is, but I thought we would start with it because it might give some extra information around a neder. So this is Rashi. I just have it so big that I can't see both the Hebrew and the English. So if anybody wants to see the Hebrew, just tell me and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll scroll down. So this is when one, this is Rashi. This is when one says, behold, I take upon myself an obligation, which is as sacred to me as an offering, right? So they're not talking about giving an offering. They're now talking about doing that same kind of act towards God, but through words that I will not eat or that I will not do such and such a thing. So one might think that if he swears that he will eat the flesh of an animal, which has not been slaughtered properly, according to the right that I may apply to him, the text, he shall do according to all that goes forth from his mouth. It however says he takes an oath to forbid something to himself to forbid for himself something which is permissible to him and not to make permissible that which is forbidden to him. Does that make sense to everybody? So it's it's like the typical, or maybe not typical, it's the most common, I used it earlier in, a, in an example, 
around, you know, you, it's, it's January 1st and you don't want to eat as much sugar. And so you can have sugar, right? You are an adult. You can make those decisions, but you are forbidding yourself to have sugar because of, for whatever reason, but you cannot use a vow. You cannot use a nadir to say, I'm going to only eat bacon for breakfast, right? You can't make something permissible that is otherwise forbidden, but something that's permissible to you, like cutting your hair or drinking wine, if we're going to go back to Samson taking on his vow, right? That you can't, you can't make something that, that you can't have now something you can have. You can only make something that you can have something that you can't have. Any questions or comments on that? It's more just like information. It's like a dictionary, but I just wanted to make sure we knew that. Yeah, Joanna. This might be slightly off topic, okay. but this concept of words as sacred as an offering, mm-hmm. um, is this, does this have, is this at all where it comes from in post-temple Judaism of prayer replacing sacrifice because words can be as sacred as an offering? There's a linkage there that I think plays out later on. Yeah, probably. I'm just looking to see if they use the same word. Um, yeah, probably. I mean, I, I don't see that it's clearly stated here that way, but I'm sure that there are, there are reasons for which we connect words or we connect prayer now to what sacrifice used to be based on the fact that we, I mean, we say Baruch Shemar every morning, right? The idea that we are able to use our words to create worlds and to destroy worlds. And so in this case too, you are connecting that which you would use as prayer or as supplication in the same kind of way, whether it's sacrifice or it's, um, or it's prayer. Beautiful connection. Yeah. Any other thoughts or comments on this, Rashi? Okay. I did bring a little bit of Hasidut because I knew that Rabbi Shapiro was not going to be here. So I, I had to, and I'll try to interrupt myself also just to make sure that you really get the feeling of, so, you know, Rabbi Shapiro is here and badgering me. Um, okay. So this has to do with the fact that you have to carry anything out that you've said, right? So anything, it says you're crossed your lips, but really it's that has come out of your mouth, you will do. So Rashbam says it refers back to taking an oath. Hishavash ruah. Um, he must do according to what he specified in taking an oath, according to the time he specified, whether short or long. So this, to go back to the Kol Nidre piece, obviously is not talking about the kind of Kol Nidre cycle, right? So if you said, I'm not going to, um, I'm not going to watch TV on Shabbat for three years, right? You, it's saying here that you have to take it on for all three years. But as we know about Kol Nidre, it's not really the case. You kind of have a reset button if you want it every time you get to Kol Nidre. And a proof of the matter of what these two things mean is what Moshe said in Deuteronomy, coming in just a few weeks. When you make a vow to the Lord your God, do not put off fulfilling it. You must fulfill what has crossed your lips and perform it. So it's saying to not hesitate, right? If you've said this is something I'm going to do or this is something that I know needs to happen, you then should rush to do it. You shouldn't You shouldn't hesitate to have that connection with God. Um Oh, Susan Nemeth is joining us. Um, okay. 
So the Turha roof, anybody have any questions about that one? It was a lot more of the same. So that's why I moved on quickly, but anyway, no? Okay. Um, so this one I thought was very interesting because it really plays up the God piece. Um, so I forget who asked the question, question of if it's not to God, but it's just a vow to yourself or to someone else, is there a different category there? So the Tur Haruch here is really taking on the God piece. And it says, um, if a man makes a vow to God, he vows himself to honor God. So it's an interesting read that this is, it might be a vow that has nothing to do with God at all, but because God is connected to the vow you're making, you're then honoring God in your vow making, right? And maybe that goes back to the, you can't say, I vow to eat bacon every breakfast for the next year, right? That it has to be something that is that is okay by God because any vow you make is somehow connected to God. Hi, Susan. The re- whatever you called me about, you can ask me about after class. Um, the reason we understand it in this fashion is that the Torah otherwise should have written in God, right? In the name of God or invoking God's name. So what the Tor Haruch is doing here, if you can't follow kind of the, the Hebrew jigsaw, is it's saying that the sentence, Ish ki ador neder ladonai, is that you're making the vow to God as opposed to in the name of God or through God, but that it's being done directionally. It's being done to God. Now, you could say, well, sacrifices were done to God, but not for God only. Prayer is done to God, but for me. Right? So the the direction, though, I think it probably matters somewhat. The Tor Haruch is really leaning into. I'm not sure the Torah was as specific in in what that um, in what that meant. Um, and then it goes on to say that elsewhere it says, "Swear to me in the name of God." Hashi Hashi Hashi. Well, I don't know what that'd be there. Hashbu'ah maybe Li Be Elohim, right? In God. So swear to me in the name of of God. Any thoughts on this? I, 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 I think what, what I'm getting out of most of this conversation is it's not just the importance of the vow. It's the importance of how of the intention that when we say something, sure. the kavanah of when we make a vow, that we have to have the right purpose, the right intention to make a vow. Sure. And we can't just say, I'm going to lose weight. You know, or I'm going to I'm going to go to temple more. There has to be an intent, something that we can uh, get ourselves to do in that. You know, we're going to go to temple more on Saturday mornings, maybe, or we're going to try not to eat so much junk food or, you know, I think it's that's the whole thing. I think this is trying to get at is our intentions well, and yeah. it's our intentions to God. Yeah it's it's such an interesting way of thinking about it and it made me think of personal affirmations right i'm sure everyone's seen um you know people writing on their mirrors or there was this really cute little girl who there these these videos went viral of a mom who would take her little girl to school and before she would take her to school she would say i am brave i am courageous i am beautiful and she would say these things aloud with her mom. Did anybody else see those videos? Anybody know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Um, 
It was a very cute little girl. Um, if I can find it, I'll, I'll show it to you. Uh, but, but it makes me think of self-affirmations in any way, right? That if you say those things out loud to yourself or you see them maybe, um, that there is something much more intentional about the action then as opposed to just, I could wake up in the morning and say, I'm not going to eat any junk food today. But then come 3 p.m. when I really want a bag of chips, you know, if I haven't said it out loud or I haven't said it to anybody else, no one knows that I thought that at eight o'clock in the morning, I'm going to eat the chips at 3 p.m. So I think, I think you're right that, that it can also make you feel better or make you feel more empowered if you hear something on the outside, because then it seems whether or not you believe in God, it seems like someone is listening. Someone is, someone is aware of the intentions that you're putting out into the world. Um, yeah, I really like that. It's a very different take on this than I had thought of before. Um, other thoughts on this one? I'm going a little bit quickly because I brought a lot of things and I want to get to most of them, but any, I don't want to overpower the speaking if other people want to share. Marlies, do you want something? No. Okay. You just leaned in. I thought maybe you were looking to unmute. Um, okay. We're not going to look at this one. Okay. So this is actually, who brought up the prayer thing? That was very interesting. Who brought up prayer? Denise, was that you? Okay. No, sorry. I couldn't unmute. Oh, was not you. Okay. Someone brought, up, someone brought up, is this connected to the idea of prayer, right? Where we get, oh, was it Joanna? Where we get sacrificed to prayer. Anyway, whoever it was, good job. Um, so when we look here at Brachot in the Talmud, there is a piece that's going to connect it not as, not as directly as I think it was Joanna did. Um, but it says here, the Torah continues, this is bringing in a verse from Exodus. And Moses beseeched Vayachal, it's the same word that we had before, before the Lord. Oh, before, before, sorry. Um, many interpretations were given for this uncommon term, Vayachal. Rabbi Elazar said, it teaches that Moses stood in prayer before the Holy One, blessed be he, until it made him ill from overexertion. But like, basically, he just did it so much that then he got sick, probably tired, but okay, sick. And Rava said, Moses stood in prayer until he nullified his vow, as the term vayachal alludes to nullification of an oath. So they're bringing in these pieces here to, to connect this idea of how much kind of supplication Moshe was doing, that it brought him to this point of just Overexertion, right? Oh, it says overexertion. Overexertion, over, over connection to God. Um, but that Moses also was standing there because he was trying to nullify this vow. He was trying to get himself out of something. Here it is written by Yachal, and they're referring to vows. It is written, he shall not nullify lo Yachel, his word. And with regard to vows, the master said, God said, a person who vows cannot nullify his vow, but others, the courts, that's where we get back to the bait team, can nullify his vow for him. Hear it as if Moses nullified the Lord's vow to destroy Israel. That's kind of unnecessary. If we were reading in the Sugi, I'm sure that would be very necessary, but it has nothing to do with our point here. So you can see how these two things are kind of coming to play, not using the same, um, the same word that we now use for prayer, but the same general idea that in prayer you would stand before God and beg for something or ask for something or praise for something. But then again, what we're seeing here with the same, with the same play of this word, 
that Moshe did the same when he was trying to nullify his vow. And so maybe are those two things then connected in terms of prayer and nullifying vows? Okay. So this is where we're going to get into some chassidut. We're not going to read all of this. I know this is looking very long. Don't worry. We're not going to read it all. There's no way in Safaria for me to cut things. So even if I want like three sentences, I have to copy the whole thing. This is fun. Are you having fun? Yeah. Okay. Um, for those of you listening on the podcast, I just scrolled through like 35 pages of text. Okay. Um, I just, just want to read the end of this. Okay. So hold on, let me just move you all for one second so I can see this. Um, so we're not going to read this whole thing as you saw, but I'm going to start where it says when the vow. So when the vow concerns a devar mitzvah, so something that had to be fulfilled any, anyway, so something that you were going to do as a mitzvah, even if no vow had been made at all, the Torah warns do not be tardy to pay it, right? So if you, I'm sure everybody knows that one of the, one of the principles of payment in Judaism is that you pay right away. So if someone, if someone comes to clean your home, even if they are not Jewish and all the more so if they are Jewish, you are to pay them right away. You're not supposed to say, Oh, let me get that to you later. Or, Oh, let me, you know, I don't know. Let me get it next time. You're supposed to give them payment immediately. That's a Jewish, um, that's a, a Jewish mitzvah. Um, do not be tired to pay it. The Lord will surely demand it from you, right? So if you haven't paid, then you should you should make sure that that you do because the, the God is then going to, you know, go after you if you don't. But this is the part that I was most interested in. For that reason, the Torah continues, if you fail to make vows, this will not be counted a sin against you. So what do you think that means? If you fail to make vows, this will not be counted a sin against you. Yeah, Taibo. That if you recognize that year after year that you're doing a certain Avera and you really should stop and, and you know you should stop because it wasn't one year, it's however many years, you should make a vow so you take it more seriously, but you know you're going to have trouble so you don't take that vow. Oh, okay. Interesting. Great. So you might be kind of getting yourself in more trouble than it's worth if you, if you take on the vow. Okay, Elon. Uh, my take on it is that even if one does not actually take a vow, the point is uh, just by entering an agreement, it's as if you took the vow. So there, you're, it mm-hmm. won't be held against you that you did not take a vow, which actually to me is, is a uh, is a very um, refreshing look on Jewish business ethics, right? Which is mm-hmm. you make a deal with somebody, whether or not you said, I swear to God that I'm going to do this deal. Yeah. You're, bound, you're bound by it as if you had taken a vow and it won't be held against you that you did not. Yeah. Yeah. Great. So when we, let's keep that in mind for a second. This is the, this is the first part of this, um, of, of this Akedat Yitzchak piece. And sorry, I still have to move you all. Um, so a person attains his ideal state via a threefold process. He must fulfill his duties towards himself. He must fulfill his duties towards his fellow person. He must fulfill his duties towards God. So to Elon's point, right, that's that's really the second piece here, maybe even a little piece um, of the first one as well. But if you're if you're dealing with another person, you need to know that that which you're in business for 
you have made a quote vow that even if it's not a big vow or even if it's just a promise, a little vow, um, that you are making sure that you hold to your word, both you and the person who you are in business with, because you need to be kind to yourself, but you also need to make sure that you take care of the other person. And then obviously we add in here, God. The prophet Micha, um, we, we just read this Haftorah two weeks ago, uh, describes man's tasks as follows. What is it that the Lord asks of you except for to do justice, to practice loving kindness, and to walk humbly with the Lord your God? So the Akedat Yitzchak is combining these three things with the three things um, above, not not one to one, but in general, that you need to do these three things to also accomplish the first three of making sure it's good for you, good for the other person, good for God. Duties towards oneself are easily understood. Therefore, the prophet refers to them by the word mishpat, law. So I wanted you to see this piece because though, though they're not going to now continue through and talk about, um, talk about nedarim, talk about vows, I think that this is a very powerful way of thinking about vows, similar to what Elon and Tybal said, that a vow is also something that is not just you and you. According to the Torah, it's you and God. And in modern day, it's you and another person or people, right? You are in some ways affecting both yourself and potentially another person by taking on a neder. So you have to make sure that you fulfill that, whether the fulfillment is saying, I can't uphold that which I thought I would be able to, or by saying, I fulfilled everything that I that I promised to you. But either way, that communication of saying, I'm going to do something, you need to follow through with it. Okay, thoughts, questions, comments on this very long piece that we didn't read all of. Okay. Um, oh, this is just a cute little thing. I don't know that the Kedushat lady would have called it cute, but I am calling it cute. Um, a cute little thing that that I thought that Rabbi Shapiro would have really loved. Um, and it says here that the word neder is broken down into nun dar. So the, the letter nun and then dalid resh. The letter nun referring to Israel's faith in God who in turn supervises our fate in all his mercy at times and wherever we are, not abandoning us for even one second. So sweet. I think what they're doing is that door is generation. So the fact that a nun comes before door, we have that God is with us in every one of these vows and every moment of our, of our generation. Again, I think it's quite cute. I'm not sure that it's like super important, but I think it's cute. Yeah, Marlies. Uh, I didn't understand the nun being for God. It's just, uh, it's just saying that it's that it's representative. It didn't say as to why. It, I mean, it goes on to oh, say, but okay. it says um, it's found in Numbers and in Job, and it points to God's supervision. The letter nun is not inverted, but it's a final letter. So it goes on. It basically, that was like the topic sentence. And then it goes on to describe why nun. But this okay. is just a fun play on words that the Kedushat Levy came up with and ran with it. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, okay. Uh, I'm just trying to, I recognize that we don't have all the time in the world. So give me one second. Oh, okay. There's not so much left. So. This piece, um, 
this phrase, we're just going to read the beginning. So this is also Kedushat Levi, and it says, in order to impose a prohibition upon his person. Um, so Le'esor Isar al Nafsho, which is from our verse, right? That this idea that you would take on a prohibition for yourself, for your own soul. From the wording of the Torah, it seems clear that the permission to utter vows or oaths is granted only if the person doing so did so in order to strengthen his ability to obey certain commandments. So that's kind of going back to the, you can't decide to eat bacon every morning, right? It has to be something that's making the your connection to commandments even stronger or your connection to God even stronger. That he was in danger of violating that he had not in, reinforced his determination by means of a vow or an oath. So if for some reason he wasn't a person, was not sure that they would be able to fulfill this vow or fulfill this mitzvah or what have you, they might take on a vow to make sure that they have that strength to actually do it because then then you have to do it, right? If you know that you are a person who is addicted to sugar, you might take a vow so that you do not eat sugar because you know that you might not be good at doing that unless you take a vow and the vow is obligatory. So now if you've taken a vow, you really can't eat that sugar. It's kind of, um, it's similar to like Lent, right? When you give something up that, that if you give something, I remember when I, my freshman roommate, um, I forget what she gave up, but I remember that during lunch, she gave something up and it was a huge deal. Um, cause it was something that she really loved. Maybe it was pizza. I don't remember we were in college. It probably was pizza. Um, but she gave something up and she really felt the absence of that, but she wouldn't have given it up just to give it up. She gave it up because she knew it was an obligation to her to give something up. So I think that's what it's saying here about vows, that if you know something, some commandment is going to be hard for you to take on, obligate yourself to that commandment, and it will necessitate that you actually do that thing, and therefore you'll become closer to that commandment. Very interesting theology, not sure it works for everybody, but a very interesting way of thinking about how we become close to that which might be difficult for us. Everybody still with me? Without Rabbi Shapiro, I talk much more, um, which I'm just realizing. <laughs> I like when he talks. It's much more interesting. Yeah, Karen. Maybe you said this when I was out of the room. Yeah. If you vow yeah. to light candles every Friday, but then you feel ill. Yeah. And you could just can't deal with Shabbat dinner. Yeah. What about that? Then you don't like candles. I mean, pikuach nefesh comes above every. No, I can light the candle still, but I oh. can't do the whole Shabbat dinner. Yeah, that's okay. So you just you just wouldn't do it. I mean, I think that that one of the things that's like the highest principle in Judaism, right? I don't think it's like written down anywhere, but one of the highest principles in Judaism is that you take care of life before anything else. So if you really can't do it, then you can't do it. Um, yeah. Uh, okay. Um, so this last piece is from the Shnelu Chotabrit, another Hasidic text, thanks to, well, me, but Rabbi Shabir. Um The last four words in this verse appear superfluous. So anybody remember what the last four words were? <laughs> yeah, me neither. Um, okay, hold on. Let's look at the last four words. Okay. Well, the last four words you said was the last four words. What? 
the last four words that you said were the last four words. Ah, very good, very good. There's always one guy. Uh, right? For all that has come out of your mouth, you must do it. So why are those four words superfluous? Since if we are prohibited from breaking a vow, which it says earlier on in the verse, we must obviously do anything that we've said. Right, so if you know not to break a vow, then you must know that you have to do something that you've said aloud. That's superfluous. That's a redundant statement. The moral lesson of the Torah, that the Torah wishes to convey is therefore not connected to the laws of vows and oaths. Rather, the Torah emphasizes that we must keep our word. Even what we have said was not said in the form of a promise or a vow. So what I love about this and to end on is that, though, if anybody has any statements, you can be the last word. But as a text to end on, what I love about this is that it's not just because of a vow that you must do what you say. But that what the Torah is trying to get us to understand is that words are extremely important. And words are things that we should not just use flippantly, as my grandparents would say, but rather just the, speak when you know that you're going to add something or when you're going to change something or when you're going to promote something that's going to put good into the world. Because you could... You could think that you're not allowed to get rid of a vow, but you might also think that anything that comes out of your mouth is just words and doesn't have any weight to it. So what the, what the who was this? The Shnei Chotabrit is saying is that you need to be careful of any words that come out of your mouth. That has nothing to do with whether or not you said, I vow X, Y, and Z, or I swear to God, X, Y, and Z. That just means that these things that have to come out of your mouth for them to work, for them to be vows, are just as important as anything else that comes out of your mouth and has as much power as anything else that comes out of your mouth. So I'm going to stop here, though. I'm happy to hear any other questions. Um, and I hope that over Shabbat, you're able to think about this. Like, how are how do you use your words? How do you think about the words that you say? Um, those of you who might be on tonight for, for Kabbalat Shabbat, I'm going to share a story about how I had to be silent for a few weeks and how I became so much more aware of how I use my words um, and when I can use my words. So... I just think it's a powerful thing for us to all be aware of. And words in today's day are text messages and emails and blog posts and sermons and articles. It's not just the things we say. So any words that we're using are are out there to be very powerful. You have been listening to another in our series of podcasts from Temple Beth Am, a dynamic center for conservative Judaism in Los Angeles. If you enjoy these podcasts, we invite you to write a review on the Apple Podcast site or wherever you get your podcasts. For more information about Temple Beth Am Los Angeles, go to tbala.org.